Now looking to God for his help, let's uh, turn to the second reading, that's in John chapter 3. And the famous words of verse 3, perhaps one of the best known verses in the Bible. John chapter 3 and verse 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. (coughs) Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned before the reading, we saw Christ last time led by the Spirit to Jerusalem at the time of the feast of the Passover. And it was his first visit there as the Christ. His first visit there as God's messenger. And he begins that visit by cleansing the temple. And we saw the significance of that fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And he follows that by performing signs in the city. Now we're not actually led to any of them. We're simply told that he performed them. In verse 23, that's at the end of chapter 2, we read that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. You remember that sign is John's favorite word for miracle. So it is a miracle, a sign is a miracle, but it's a miracle that signposts. It points us towards the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ and tells us something about his ministry and work as well. So he performed signs. We know from elsewhere in the scripture that these involved healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, uh, giving hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, and enabling the lame to walk. It also included casting out evil spirits when people were possessed by such evil spirits. Now these are, I was going to say these are all significant. Well, the word sign is inside significant. They are signs. They are significant. They are all pointers. And the thing about them is that they should all have been understood as being significant by the people because the Old Testament had made plain that when the Messiah would come into this world, he would perform such signs. For example, in Isaiah 35, where you have specific references to the blind receiving their sight and the deaf receiving hearing, the lame being able to walk, and so on. So the signs were prophesied, and here he is performing the signs. So I suppose, in many ways, it's not surprising that we're told in this verse, verse 23, that many people believed when they saw the signs. Read it again. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when 
they saw the signs which he did. Now, so far, so good. The point of the sign was to signpost. They saw the sign and they believed. But it's not as straightforward as that. And in some respects, the next verses are a remarkable one. Because we read that Jesus did not commit himself to these believers because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify concerning man, who he was and what he was like, for he knew what was in man. Jesus did not commit himself to these believers or he didn't commit himself to their belief or to their faith. Perhaps you could say in a more colloquial way, he had no faith in their faith. He had no belief in their faith. He didn't commit himself to their commitment. Why not? Well, because it was obvious to him that they were only impressed with the power that performed the signs. They were not impressed with the word that accompanied these signs. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm well aware that this verse doesn't draw attention to the fact that our Lord was preaching. But preaching was his preeminent work. And the signs were only authenticating his preaching, proving that his preaching was coming from God, that he was a man sent from God, that he was God's Messiah, God's minister, that he was God's Christ. And the whole purpose of the signs was not just to receive them for their own sake or even to point to the wonder of the man, but to enable them to listen to the word and to be attentive to the word. Because it was the word that saved. It was the word that brought life. The signs in themselves could give nobody life. They could give hearing, they could give speech, they could give healing, but not spiritual life. Only the reception of the word gave that. And the Lord knew, he just knew because of who he was, that they were not receiving the message. The message was, of course, to do with himself. The need for faith in himself. The need to repent, to take up the cross and to follow himself. But that was not preeminent in their minds. So he had no faith in their faith. Now this... Um, this theme of um, spurious faith runs right through John's Gospel. Our attention is drawn to it more than once. For example, after feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, the people wanted to make him a king. They were that impressed with what he had done, and, and why not? But the Lord refused their desire to crown them. Because, he said, you are not seeking me or seeking to crown me because you understood the signs, but because you ate the loaves and the fishes and you were filled. That's why. Notice how carefully he speaks. You don't seek me because you understood the sign. You saw the sign, yes, 
And the sign very obviously pointed to my power and my dignity and my ability to do wonderful things. For you as individuals or families or even as a nation, you saw that, but you didn't understand. You didn't understand the significance of the loaves and the fish and the breaking of them and the feeding. You didn't understand that. But you ate something. I was a provider for you. I was a wonder worker for you. And of course it's possible to want that kind of Jesus. Many people do. Who wouldn't? Who doesn't want somebody to help them in their situations? But it's the message we need to understand. It is the gospel we need to understand. We don't need to receive Christ as a kind of magician in our lives. We need to receive him as a saviour. Who will deal with the problem of sin and unbelief. Who will deliver us into holiness and at last into the kingdom of God. That's the only saviour that will do. And that's the only kind of saviour he is. And to follow him on any other terms was not acceptable. In fact, there was at least one occasion when the Lord told people to turn around and not to follow him anymore because they were following him for the wrong reasons. And if we profess faith in Christ ourselves this morning, it's a good question to ask, does the Lord have faith in our faith? Is the Lord committing himself to our commitment? (coughs) Does the Lord receive us as sincere and genuine in the profession that we make this morning to be Christians? We can't have Christ unless we have his message. We can't. Unless we put out yea and amen to his word as our Lord and our King. Now when Nicodemus comes to Christ... He comes to him as one of these people. One of these men who have been impressed with the signs, but he is not, at least not yet, accepting the message. That's why uh, the word man keeps appearing. If you just go back to verse 24 of chapter 2, Jesus did not commit himself to them, Because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man that was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In other words, one of these people interested, impressed, awed perhaps, but not believing, at least not fully. And with God's help, this morning and tonight, I want us to look at how Christ deals with this man, Nicodemus. Now, I'm conscious that you've probably heard, some of you might have heard, hundreds of sermons on Nicodemus. And sometimes when you come to a passage like this, you may say, well, I know this, I've heard about Nicodemus, and immediately your hearing is affected. You may be even filtering what you hear through something before. But as the Lord said, take heed how you hear. And every time we come under the sound of the gospel, let's resolve to take heed how we hear it. Let's listen intentively. Let's listen reverently. Desiring to learn, to understand, 
to grow in the knowledge of God, hopefully and prayerfully, as our Lord and our Saviour, Christ and Nicodemus. Now, <clears throat> let's begin, first of all, with who he is. In a way, we don't know much, but we know as much as the Scripture intends us to know, and that's more than we probably realise. First of all, we're told that he is a Pharisee. He was a man of the Pharisees. That tells us immediately that he was a religious man, that he valued the Old Testament and recognized it as the Word of God. It also tells us that he's fallen into the trap of relying on the tradition of the fathers rather than upon the Word of God. It also tells us that he has fallen into the trap of believing that he is already saved. He's already saved because, well, to play on Christ's words, because he has been born once. It just so happens that, as far as Nicodemus concerns, is concerned, his birth was very favourable and very privileged. He is Abraham's child. He can look into his ancestry and he can trace it right back to Abraham. That means he is born inside the church. It means that the mark of circumcision on his flesh was to him a mark of belonging. He doesn't need a radical change to enter the kingdom of God. He may wonder what kind of change other people may need to undergo to belong to the kingdom of God, but he's been born in it. So he's really privileged. And he is saved in his own eyes. You may think that that's a, a really strange position, you know, for anybody to come up, to, to settle into by conviction, to think that just because of who they are, who they were born to, or the, the church that they belong to, that they're saved. But, and to us, in a way, it is strange. I mean, I look at it and I think, well, it's a peculiar thing to believe. But it's actually a very stubborn belief. It's quite remarkable the extent to which some people think that they're okay, that they're saved and that they're right with God because they have certain parents, certain grandparents. They belong to a certain religious stream or tradition. They're affiliated to a particular denomination, especially if they were born in it. And they're all right. You don't need to tell them what they need to do to be saved. They're okay. They're baptized into the mother church or into some other church and they're fine. That's the way that Nicodemus was. Providing, of course, he continued to keep the law. He knew that was an important thing. But salvation to him was something he already had. Could lose it, but he had it. The second thing we know about him is that he was a teacher. In verse 10, Jesus says to him, after speaking to him about the need to be converted, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you don't actually know these things? I'm talking to you about the need to be born again, and you're actually telling me you don't know what that means, and you are a teacher in Israel. The word teacher means master, instructor. Nicodemus was a teacher of God's word. 
In other words, on a, on a Sabbath day, he would stand up in a synagogue and do what I am actually doing today. That's what Nicodemus would do. He would take a passage from the Word of God, he would take one of the scrolls, either of the law or of the prophets, and he would expound it. He would explain to the people what the law and the prophets actually meant. The third thing we know about him is that he was a ruler of the Jews. Again in verse 1, a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. That doesn't just mean that he was an elder. It actually means more than that. I'm not saying the word means that he was more than that, but the rest of the Bible tells us he was a specific kind of ruler. It tells us that he was actually elected into the national government of 70. A collection of the chief priests and of the elders and so on. 70 people who, were the, who functioned as the national government of the Jewish people usually referred to as the Sanhedrin. And they governed civil matters and spiritual matters. Now, their rule was actually circumscribed a bit because they had come under the Roman authorities. But that's still who they were, a powerful body of people. And Nicodemus, it is plain, belonged to them. A member of the 70 who ruled over the people of God. Now all these things tell you right away that this man is certainly religious. He's obviously very able. He is well known nationally. Not just locally in Jerusalem, but he is nationally known. He is obviously respected. And he is highly influential as a person. But although he's that high up in the church, he's not converted I wish I could say to you that that was an unusual thing. I'm not at all sure that that's so. It's quite a thought, really, to think or, or to wonder how many people there still are who may be teaching in office in the professing Church of Christ and unconverted, not knowing the life of God in their own souls. It's possible for that to be true in the membership, of course, too, that we may be members of churches, but not have the life of God in our own hearts, not, not knowing the power of godliness, the desire for holiness, the breath of prayer, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, not having any of these things actually living in our hearts. Teaching the Word of God, ignorant of its own power, like Thomas Chalmers when he was a, a preacher in Fife for several years, going into the ministry because he thought it would give him leisure time to study astronomy and other things that he was interested in. Preaching and preaching and preaching as a dead man to others until he became sick and in his affliction he found God. God found him. And then he became a real minister of the gospel, a real preacher of the word. Like happens to many members too who are just dead members. And then God meets them. Maybe this even happened to yourself. I don't know. But God met you after you took your place at the Lord's table. And you became a real Christian. Anyway, that's how, or that's who Nicodemus was. The second 
thing about him is just to ask why exactly he comes. Why does he come to Jesus? We know this by inference. Because Jesus immediately begins to speak to him about the kingdom of God. In fact, Christ's opening salvo is that unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. It is obvious that Nicodemus has come to speak to him about the kingdom of God. After all, that was Christ's message. Yes, he was opening the eyes of the blind, he was unstopping their ears, he was casting out evil spirits, but he was preaching repent. Because the kingdom of God is a time, change, time for renewal, time for washing, time for cleansing. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is at hand because I, the king, have arrived. And I have arrived as a king to establish this kingdom. To lay the foundation of the church, which will be built and will endure unto eternity. So repent and believe the gospel. Now Nicodemus is interested in all that. How can't he be? He's been brought up to expect this kind of advent of God's kingdom. He's known that in one form the kingdom of God has always been around. And belonging to Israel, that was a form of it. But he knows that the real advent of the kingdom is going to occur when the king arrives. He knows that when the Messiah comes, there's going to be real change. Because when the Messiah comes, not only will Israel know about it, but the world will know about it. God will accelerate his program for salvation when he sends the Messiah into the world. That will be an age of blessing, an age of refreshment for the Jewish people, and an age of awakening for the Gentile unbelieving world. And Nicodemus wants to know, when's it coming? How's it going to begin? How do we know that it's actually beginning? Is it even here? We've all heard of John the Baptist and his preaching and he has announced that the Messiah is actually walking amongst us today even as we speak. Is that true? Who is this Messiah? Is it you? And of course, he comes to Christ because he believes that anyone who can perform the miracles that Christ performs has something to say about the matter. You are a teacher. We know, he says. I don't know who he's speaking for there. He's probably speaking for more than himself. I think that's why he says we know. But we know that whatever it is you're saying, you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do these signs. And we can't doubt them. Nobody can do them unless God is with him. Now, I personally don't think he's finished his speech when Christ cuts in. He may be, but I don't think he is. I think he's only given the introduction. But the introduction is enough. You do demand a hearing, and we want to hear what you've got to say. Before looking at Christ's response, I, I just want you to notice too that he comes in a certain way. 
He comes respect- respectfully. He addresses the Lord as Rabbi in verse 2. Now, Rabbi was not an easy title to earn. It wasn't cheaply given. There are lots of degrees today that are cheaply earned and cheaply given. We all know that. Rabbi was not one of those. And for Nicodemus to give it to Christ says a lot. He hadn't been familiar with this man. He hadn't trained this man. Nobody that he knew had. But he recognized that he was a man sent of God. He gave him that honor and he gave him that dignity. Now friends, it's very important if you expect God to answer you that you address him properly. Some people say that, well, God's never spoken to me. God's never answered my prayer or God's never shown himself to me. And I'm tempted to ask, well, in what way did you ask him? Are you demanding your rights? Are you demanding that God show himself to you because you have a right that God show himself to you? Are you assuming the position of the superior, talking to your inferior in heaven, saying, do this for me, do that, and then maybe I'll believe or maybe I won't? I don't know if it's ever occurred to you. It needs to occur to us all that we need humility to come to God. We saw that last week, actually, when it comes to Moses meeting with God. The sense of reverence is the most primary religious sense possible. You've got to have it. Without it, you've got nothing else. No reverence, no nothing. No nothing at all. And at least Nicodemus comes before him and does him the honor of calling him rabbi. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, or he helps the humble. He resists the proud, he helps the humble. Psalm 18, verse 26. With the pure, now this is the psalmist um, speaking to God, and he says, With the pure, you show yourself pure. With the shrewd, you show yourself shrewd. You can't, it's not a word, but let's just make one. You can't outshrewd God. You can't. Uh, God is greater than you, greater than me. Perhaps what you need to do today, maybe for the first time in your life, it's possible you may need to do this later as a Christian too, but for the first time in your life, perhaps what you need to do is go down on your knees before God. Acknowledge your smallness, your need, and your willingness to be taught and ask Him to show Him, show you Himself, Ask him to have mercy upon you. Ask him to receive you into your kingdom. If there's something you really need to know, ask him to show you that. Not something that you'd like to, but need to. To meet God in any way. Humility first. He comes respectfully. You'll notice that he also comes fearfully because he comes by night. There's an interesting little detail about Nicodemus because every time he's mentioned in the Gospels we're told he came by night. Or at least we're reminded that he originally came by night. And the fact is that 
as the gospel narrative goes on, he's coming out into the open. Little by little, he's coming out into the open as a believer. But we're always reminded that he originally came by night. In other words, fear goes. Courage gradually takes its place. But make no mistake, he came originally by night because he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Well, already it's becoming a risky matter. If you're a Pharisee, if you're an office, if you belong to the authorities, it's already a risky matter, already, to identify at all as even interested in the Lord. The cleansing of the temple upset the authorities. Vested interests, vested spiritual interests and vested financial interests. And Nicodemus is afraid of man. Oh, friends, we all know what that means. The fear of man that brings a snare. Fear of people, fear of a neighborhood, fear of a community, fear of your peers, fear of your relatives. It's what keeps most interested people back from following up their interest and becoming Christians. Let me say that again. The fear of man, the fear of people, is the thing that most keeps interested people back from following up their interest and becoming Christians. You can't follow it through because you're afraid of people. If you follow Nicodemus' history in the Gospel, you'll find that he eventually lost his place in the Sanhedrin. He lost his particular reputation in his community. Why? Because he became a Christian. Just as Moses had to say goodbye to Egypt. And and that's why at every point we're tested on something like this. Who do we fear the most? God or man? Who do we respect the most? Whose approval do we want the most? God or man? So here you've got a very able, respected, religious man coming respectfully to Christ, full of questions, Maybe there's a sense that he thinks he knows more than he does already. And certainly he feels that he's all right with God. He just wants a discussion, rabbi to rabbi, if you like. Master to master about the things of God. Of course, Christ's response shatters all that. It just rolls in like thunder and explodes the whole conversation. Puts it in an entirely different direction. Nicodemus, he doesn't address him by name, but we have the distinct feeling that he more or less stopped the conversation before it started. Let's understand this straight away, Nicodemus, that unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I've sometimes heard this explained as, can't even see it, never mind enter it. That's not what it means. The word see means to experience. Unless a man is born again, he can't enter the kingdom. He'll never experience it. He'll never be a participant in it. That's what the word see very often means. Like, for example, in Psalm 89, who is he who will not see death? That means who will not experience death? 
who will not undergo death. doesn't mean understand death, but who will not experience it. And in fact, later on the Lord confirms that when he uses the word enter in verse 5, most assuredly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, it's an interesting question as to the extent that somebody can understand the things of the kingdom. We could say a lot about that, but the point here is that it's a moot point. It's not the issue. The issue is that unless you're born again, you'll never enter the kingdom. It's not going to be your interest. You'll never participate in it. Without a radical change, Nicodemus, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus knows he's included and conscious that it's put in an impersonal form, first of all. Unless one or unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But in verse 7 it says, you must be born again. It's you plural, all right. But of course that includes the you singular. I'm talking to you, Nicodemus. And I'm talking to the rest of the Pharisees like you. I'm talking to all the people who have seen the signs that I've done in Jerusalem and who say they believe in one way or another, but I'm telling you, unless you're born again, you're not going to participate in the kingdom of God. You may have been born once in a very privileged way. You may have been circumcised. You may have a sense of belonging. Abraham is your father, but unless you're converted, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll never see it. Why not? Well, because your first birth is just not enough. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. God is Spirit. My kingdom is not of this world, it is spiritual. Heaven is spiritual. You, Nicodemus, are flesh. You're just flesh. So is everybody who's been born of the flesh. Ever since the fall of man, human nature can only produce fallen human nature. Can't do anything else. I can't produce a child that is spiritual, even if I am a Christian. I cannot do that. I cannot father a child with the Spirit of God. Now that child may have the Spirit of God. That's a moot point as well. The point is that I cannot produce that. And the mere fact of that child being born to me does not constitute that child a Christian or a spiritual child. The flesh can only produce the flesh. This Jewish man may have the sign of circumcision on the organ of reproduction in his body. But that's actually telling him that he can't produce spiritual life himself. There needs to be a fundamental surgical operation of the heart to produce what is good and pure and right. We can't think a good spiritual thought or do a good spiritual deed. We can't please God because we're in the flesh and flesh is all we are. Now it's sometimes hard to convince people of that. You may even think yourself that human nature is fundamentally good. You might think that you yourself are fundamentally good, that children are good until they become bad. People are good until society corrupts them. Of course, we could be snappy in response and say, who corrupts society? But there's no need for such snappiness because if we just look 
And if we look inside and look inside honestly, we know we're wrong. We know we're sick, at least we should. If Nicodemus would take a good look inside at his own heart, he would discover that there is something fundamentally wrong that has not yet been put right. Ancestry, okay, wonderful. Circumcision, wonderful. He's able to access the temple, wonderful. But dead still in trespasses and sins. Your mother's a Christian. Your father's a Christian. Does that make you a Christian? No. No. Does the fact that they're saved mean that you're going to be saved? No. No. To think yes means that you've fallen into Nicodemus' trap. And like I said before, it's not an unusual trap for people to fall into. There's something comfortable in it. Fallen flesh can never produce anything that belongs to the kingdom of God. No, Nicodemus. You were born once very favorably, but let me tell you, you need to be born twice. Literally, as the Greek says, you need to be born from above. What does that mean? Well, it's a good question. Nicodemus didn't know either. Although the Lord says you should, Nicodemus. You should know what this means if you're a teacher in Israel. It's not as though the Old Testament doesn't teach you and train you to understand the fundamental need for a new birth. Nicodemus says, what do you mean? How how can a person be born from above when they're old? What, what, What do you mean? If you're even talking about a change of ways, how is that possible when a person is old and established in his ways? Are you even talking about a second chance or a second opportunity of some kind? Are you saying that when a person has lived his life, he can actually come back through, through a mother's womb and be born again and have another chance at life? Is that the kind of thing? What do you mean? I don't think we should expect too much coherence in Nicodemus' questions when, after all, he doesn't really understand the issue. What do, what do you mean? Well, the Lord expands on it in verse 5. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. The best way to think of that is to think of water as being a quality that the Spirit possesses or a property that the Spirit possesses. The spirit who washes, the spirit who cleanses in a new birth. Every child is washed when they're born. There's also a washing in the second birth. Think of John the Baptist for a minute. When he was baptizing with water, you'll remember that he said to the people, he said that there comes one after me, mightier than I am. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, you're not meant to say, well, there's a baptism with the Spirit. No, no, what's a baptism with fire? That's not the right way to look at that. Fire is just a a way of describing how the Holy Spirit works. He will baptize you with the fiery Spirit or He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit who operates like fire in your life. 
No, this is exactly the same kind of idea. You must be born again of the Spirit and water. The Spirit who works like water. Just as water cleanses and purifies, so will the Holy Spirit. When He comes into your life, He will make something radically different. He will create a new you, a clean you, a clean heart. Paul, you'll remember, refers to regeneration as a washing. He calls the new birth a washing of regeneration. And here the Lord is saying that when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, he creates something new. He creates a, a clean you. There's a break between you and sin. Now, it's not total. It's not complete. But it's real. A break. You are made holy, pronounced holy, set apart, and washed. A new person. As was prefigured by Naaman when he came out of the waters of the Jordan. Having bathed in them seven times. There's your completion. Seven times and he came out with a flesh like the flesh of a newborn child. Because it is illustrating regeneration. The new birth. A washed and cleansed heart. A heart that's now beating towards God. Christ compares this work of the Spirit in your heart to to the wind. He says that in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it comes from and where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Two points of comparison. One, sovereignty. The wind blows where it wishes. Absolutely. And so does the Spirit of God. He lights upon who he wishes. It's God's work. It's his choice. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And whom he wills, he leads and he hardens. We don't deserve the Spirit of God. It is his grace that the Spirit comes into our lives at all. There's no obligation upon him to impart this spirit to sinners, rebellious and hard-hearted. We have been born again, as John says, not of blood, not of will, not of the will of man, but of God. Not of descent, not of human resolve, or human determination. That doesn't make a Christian. Descent doesn't make a Christian. Determination doesn't make a Christian, but of the will of God who makes a willing heart. It's a sovereign work. And again, just like the wind, the new birth is mysterious. You can't tell, he says, where the wind comes from or where it's going. So is he that is born of the Spirit. Except, he says, you hear the sound thereof. I wonder, as Nicodemus was talking to Christ by night, sometimes in these hot countries, um, you just hear you hear the wind like that. I'm sure you've been in that kind of, some of you anyway, in that kind of situation. 
And I'm sure when the Lord is making this allusion, they're probably hearing the sound of the wind. He says, can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. It's invisible too, it is. But you do know it's there. You know it's there by the effect it produces on your ears. Maybe it's the rustling of the leaves in the wind. It's there. You've no control over it. But there it is. So it is with the work of the Spirit. It just settles in your heart. And it's discernible in its effects. It's by its effects. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't announce himself. He doesn't shout in your ears, this is me and I am coming. It's like the wind. But something happens. Several things happen. The fear of God starts to grow in your heart. A concern for your soul. Have you got that? Something you didn't used to have. You're actually worried about about your soul. You believe you've got one and you're worried about it. You're starting to develop a thirst for the Bible. You've got a desire to pray that you never used to have before. You've got a desire to be in the house of God hearing the word of God preached. You're beginning to get weary of a godless world. It starts to become irritating and tiresome, these godless conversations and pursuits. A strange longing to be in the company of Christ's people because really you're fascinated and drawn to Christ himself. And you're looking to him increasingly as somebody who possesses a righteousness that you want, you need. Someone who has power to give mercy which you know you need in your own heart. By the appearance of these things in your life, you know that you are born again. The reason I'm putting it that way is because people often stumble about the event and they say, well, how do I know or how can I be born again or how do I know I'm born again? Spurgeon, of course, famously once said that the proof of being born is not being in possession of a birth certificate. He says it's knowing that that you're just alive. There's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. You know today, I mean, you're asking, well, I wonder if I've been born again. Well, the signs of being born again are faith and repentance. In other words, trusting him and being willing to follow him. Now, if you're willing to do that, that's because you've been born again. There is no other power that can do that. There is no other power that will make you love and trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ except the power of the Holy Spirit working in the heart. No other power. Satan could make you fascinated with the man called Jesus. Satan could certainly move you to identify with a people who are also called Christians. But he cannot give you the desire for Christ-likeness and the willingness to carry his cross and a thirst for the word and a desire for prayer. He can't give you any of that. Neither does human flesh produce that because, as the Lord said, that which is born of flesh is just flesh. That, friends, is a work of the Holy Spirit. I have to close because I've gone on longer. But can I just close by saying this? I suppose we wonder how Nicodemus responded to this. I can't say for sure. 
but I strongly suspect that just as the wind blew in the trees that night, that so the Spirit accompanied that the word, the word that the Lord spoke and worked in Nicodemus' heart. I would not be surprised if we went home that night a changed man. Maybe he didn't know that himself immediately. Certainly shortly afterwards, he shows the signs of being a changed man. When the case of Christ was discussed in the Sanhedrin, I don't mean the final case at the crucifixion, but the concern Nicodemus spoke up on his behalf. Sometimes that can be a sign, you know, of a person becoming a Christian, to just actively speak on his side, whereas they used to either stay silent or take the opposition. Nicodemus spoke in his favour and they, they actually snapped back at him and said, are you from Galilee yourself? But he just spoke on his side. Next time we find him dissenting from the Sanhedrin and going out and embalming the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. These were signs that the wind blew. I suspect it blew this night when the Lord spoke to him. Um, maybe you today are trembling, not sure whether you yourself are a new creature. If you're unsure, say to God, create in me a clean heart and show me what I must do to believe and to follow you. If you know what it means to believe and to follow, and you're still saying, am I born again? Just believe and follow. That'll be your evidence. The genuine desire for that is a gift of God. But the Lord has more to say to Nicodemus than that. May he bless our meditation on his word. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, we bless you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And how thankful we are and ought to be if he has brought near to us the things of Christ and made them precious to us. We know that today we hunger and thirst for these things and value these things and love them because of his work in our own hearts. So many of us can remember a time when we were once born. There are those perhaps amongst us who were twice born when they were hardly conscious of it. But some of us can remember being once born and being without hope and being without God in the world. And the change from that to this is entirely of the Lord. And may such a spirit breathe upon any dry bones that may be amongst us today. Bring us to life and awaken us. O Lord, we pray in the precious Saviour's name. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 51. And at verse 5. Psalm 51. At verse 5. Behold, I in iniquity was formed the womb within, 
my mother also me conceived in guiltiness and sin. I just always feel the need to point out there that he's not making a statement about his mother there, but a statement about himself. In other words, from the moment of his conception, he was guilty and sinful. It's no aspersion on his mother. Behold, thou in the inward parts with truth delighted art, and wisdom thou shalt make me know within the hidden part that's deep inside. So do thou with hyssop sprinkle me, I shall be cleansed so. Yea, wash thou me, and then I shall be whiter than the snow. These three stanzas we stand to sing.